Thank you, choir and brass and Esther and David. And we do look forward to a, a day, the, the day toward which history is headed, uh, when, when there will be ultimate peace and joy, a, a kind of joy that simply is not yet possible, but one day will be. If you have your copy of Scripture, find the first book of the Bible, Genesis, please. Genesis 41. And we're going to read verses 50 to 52. Genesis 41, 50, and uh, verse 50. And if you will, while you're finding that, two quick things. I do hope as you leave today, you'll consider giving generously to the, the Gideon's offering. I'm going to tell you a, a story in a minute, that a few minutes, that I hope will encourage that as well as what Tim said. And also next Sunday, uh, there are some folks from Apartment Life that will be with us. That's the Christian mission agency that places ambassadors in apartments to live there, to develop relationships with the ultimate goal of having people become followers of Jesus and part of a local church. So we're talking about partnering with them. They're coming next week. They'll have a, just a brief greeting and the services and then a lunch afterwards. I hope you'll come and prepare to stay for lunch. It'll be a box lunch, a simple, simple lunch, but it'll give us an opportunity to talk about this uh, unique opportunity to, um, to place representatives from our church family in these apartments that are so uh, prolifically uh, being built around us. Genesis 41, we're going to read verses 50 to 52. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Jacob, the subject of last week's message, had 12 sons, but he had one favorite son, and he was the obvious favorite. It was not, it was not subtle. Everyone knew that Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. The most obvious sign of that, of course, was the, um, that well-known part of the story where Jacob gave to Joseph the, the coat of many colors, this multicolored gift that said to the world, this is my favorite son. In fact, we've looked back. It's just amazing what you can do on the internet now. We've looked back and, um, and, and jo Jacob actually posted on Instagram a picture of Joseph with that coat and it was um, only liked by, by Jacob and his wife and the brothers had bad comments there, but, the, but he said, Joseph is my obvious favorite. And Joseph played, played that card. He, he liked being the favorite son and, and boasted of being the favorite son. He, he had two dreams that the Bible tells us about. In one, the, all the crops of his brothers were bowing down to his crops. And then another dream in which the very planets bowed down uh, to Joseph. How arrogant was that? Well, those dreams really ticked off uh, Joseph's brothers. 
And they, they found Joseph alone out in the field, angry, jealous. They stripped him, and they whipped him, and they shipped him. They sold him to some merchants that were headed to Egypt. They sold him to them, sold Joseph to them as a slave. And that was that. And they took that, that coat that they so hated, and they ripped it, and they dipped it. They dipped it into the blood of a goat they had killed, and took that shredded garment to their father, Jacob, and led him to believe that Joseph had been mangled by a wild animal. And, and Jacob, the father, was, was devastated. Joseph, in the back of that wagon, at least as I imagine, in the back of a wagon, finally arrived in Egypt where he was sold as a slave to a wealthy man named Potiphar, Mr. Potiphar. Mr. Potiphar liked Joseph. He was very fond of Joseph. Mrs. Potiphar liked Joseph too. Mrs. Potiphar liked Joseph a lot. And every day, again, not so subtly, she tried to seduce him, but couldn't. Until one day, the Bible says in Genesis 39, verse 12, that they were alone at home. Mr. Potiphar was at work. And she, she grabbed him by the collar. And in what is perhaps, well, at least one of the most important verses or, or sentences in the story of Joseph, it says, Genesis 39, 12, that Joseph ran out of the house. Joseph didn't stick around for an extended conversation about the the ethical implications of illicit relationships, he ran. He knew he was vulnerable. He knew he had feet of clay. He knew that even good people can make bad decisions. So Joseph ran. People of character understand that there are times when, although we cannot completely <clears throat> cut ourselves off from the world, there are times to run. I'm not going to try to paint a graphic picture. I hope I don't have to. But if you're a teenager or an adult, you may at some point find yourself in a, a situation much like, much like Joseph did. When your pulse and your imagination are both racing, the intersection of desire and opportunity. You must run. Even good people make bad decisions and, and people of strong character understand that we are human and thus we are vulnerable. And so when you get to that point when the temptation is about to become great, please remember Joseph running out of the house. And it might not be the kind of situation that, that Joseph faced with Mrs. Potiphar. It could, be, it could be even your workplace. When we lived in Nigeria, a, a high-ranking executive at a company in Lagos, Nigeria, came to see me um, 
I was speaking at his church, and he came and he said, I just need to I just need to bounce something off of you. He said, I'm thinking about leaving my place of business. He said, the, the corruption, the, the unethical behavior is so pervasive. It's so much a part of the culture of our company that he said, I'm, I'm being asked to do things that I know are wrong. And he said, although they are unethical, they would be beneficial to me. It would help my career. And so he said, I believe I need to leave. And he did. So he left because he was... He was in a position where, you know, it's tempting, it's tempting, right, to, to do unethical things, especially when it benefits us vocationally, and, and so, he, so he ran. So Joseph now is a slave to uh, Mr. Potiphar, and <clears throat> now Mrs. Potiphar, angry at his rebuff, reported to her husband that, in fact, Joseph had tried to come on to her, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what had happened. Mr. Potiphar, being naive, had Joseph thrown into prison. Now, Joseph, remember, had grown up in a bubble of sorts. He was not the kind of guy who does well in a prison. So for two years, this, this young, pampered man languishes in a foreign prison until Pharaoh like the king of Egypt had an unusual dream he wanted someone to interpret that dream and word got to him that there's this foreigner in prison who has been interpreting dreams his name is Joseph so Pharaoh calls for him and Joseph, in fact, interprets the dream. He he says there are going to be seven years of abundant harvest. Things are going to go really well, but you better build some bins and some silos, and you'd better save all you can because those seven years of bountiful harvest are going to be followed by seven years of famine, and it's going to get really bad in, in this part of the world. And Pharaoh believed him and uh, promoted him to VP for R&D, Vice Pharaoh for Reaping and Distributing, and gave him a big office and secretary and a big chair. And, and sure enough, they saved everything they could during those seven years of bountiful harvest, and then it got, it got rough. All through the Middle East and North Africa, uh, there was famine. And people knowing that Egypt had stored up all this food were, would come to Egypt and ask for and ask for something to eat, ask for food to take back to their homes. And then one day, the big doors opened to where Joseph's office was, and the Egyptian guards marched this bunch of brothers across the, the tile floor of that ornate room, and they're walking toward Joseph. He must have blinked, he must have rubbed his eyes, he... It was. It was those brothers. Those rascals that had stripped him and whipped him and shipped him. Those guys who were responsible for him spending two years in prison and his, his name impugned the, the rumor that he uh, had an affair with Mrs. Potiphar. And these were the guys who were responsible for all that. All those feelings must have come back, the memories, the anger that, that he must have felt all those years must have come flooding back. 
And if we didn't know the rest of the story, we would wonder at this part of the story, will he give them food? That's what they'd come for. Our family is hungry, they said. Will you give us food? If we didn't know the rest of the story, we would wonder, will he give them food? It was 1996, I believe it was, mid-90s. I was in West Georgia uh, speaking at a a church as a missionary representing the International Mission Board there at what we called in those days a World Missions Conference. And it was an evening meeting, and before the, before the service started, there was a circle of men outside yakking, and so I went out there and just kind of hung out with them for a little while. And <clears throat> some of you who've been involved in Women's Missionary Union might, might remember in the mid-90s, there was a, there was a window of opportunity opened into North Korea. So North Korea is not open to Christian missionary work, but in the mid-90s, there was a terrible famine in North Korea. And somebody had a contact, and there was a window of opportunity that opened for us to give Christian witness to North Korea by sending food. So, so the WMU folks, the Women's, Mission, Women's Missionary Union folks, were collecting money across the country to send money into Korea. And these guys were talking about that before the service started. And one of them said... I wouldn't send him a crumb. Well, he must have seen the look of surprise on my face because he said, I fought him. I'm not about to send him food. He had been in the Korean War, had been in battle, and let me say, I've never been in battle. I've not served in the military. So I I don't know what that is like. But I did think it sad that all those years later, still so, so embittered that he wouldn't give food to hungry people. We would wonder if we didn't know the rest of the story. Will Joseph give them food? He did, it took him a while, quite frankly. It wasn't an easy decision. He kind of messed with them for a little while. We're gonna, we don't have time to go into all that. But eventually, he invited them to his place. Remember, they have not recognized him. He doesn't, this big powerful man doesn't look like that, that broken, bloody little brother that they had shipped off to Egypt. Last time they saw him, he was a mess. And now this, he's in all this regalia. He's important. He's a VIP in Egypt. They didn't recognize him. And, and he said, guys, you don't know who I am, do you? We don't. It's me, Joseph, he said. Color drained from their faces, their chins hit the ground. Joseph said to his slack-jawed siblings, don't worry, guys, I'm not mad. Truth is that for all the bad that you did, uh, God God has used that for incalculable good. I'm even going to be able to, to feed you, my, my family. It takes a strong character to repay evil with kindness. It takes a person of strong character to, to treat others as we would have them do unto us instead of as they have done unto us. It's, it takes a person of strong character, especially when the betrayal 
is from somebody that was close, like your brothers. But chips on our shoulder weigh heavily on our hearts. And so it is, <clears throat> it is not only right, it is healthy to, to repay evil with kindness, to, to treat people well when they have not treated us well. Joseph intuited that, and, um, and he gave his brothers food, and they went back and they got Jacob, dad, and, and, the, and, their, and their wives and their kids, and so this great caravan finally moved up from Canaan or from Canaan down to, to Egypt and, and there were a bunch of them and, and Joseph got to watch his nieces and nephews grow up and it was just a great thing and they lived, the Hebrew people lived happily ever after for a little while and we'll get to that next week. The passage that we read this morning from the story of Joseph is about his two children. He had an Egyptian wife, and they had two children, which he named. And of course, in those days, naming a child was not just something. You didn't look at a list. At, you, know, you didn't order a, baby, a list of baby names, you know, the books. You just you waited. Just like in Nigeria when we were there, we, they waited until the child was born, and you, you considered the circumstances surrounding his or her birth, and you, you named him or her something that was fitting for the context and the time. And, and So he named the first one Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for I forget or forgetting. For he he, he, he had the gift of a clouded memory. He didn't think about any more those, those bad days when the brothers treated him so badly when they had beaten him and shipped him off. And he, he, he wasn't able, he, he didn't think about every day. Now, he used to get up in the morning, as I imagine, he'd get up in the morning thinking about prison. He didn't think about that anymore. He didn't think about how badly he felt when people were impugning his character, saying he'd been messing around with Mrs. Potiphar and he had the gift of forgetfulness. So he named his first son Manasseh, but the second son he named Ephraim. Which sounds like, uh, I understand from Hebrew scholars, it sounds like the words for twice fruitful. For, as we read, Joseph said, God has given me fruit in the land of my suffering. John Claypool talked about his grandfather's farm in southern Kentucky. The defining point of the farm was a plum tree. It was what identified the farm. It was the most visited place. It was his grandfather's pride and joy, the plum tree. And then a tornado swept through southern Kentucky. And when the funnel cloud had gone, and they emerged from their shelter, they went outside and the plum tree had been uprooted and toppled. And there lay the plum tree. They gathered around it and worried about how their grandfather would respond They asked him, Granddaddy, what are you going to do? He pondered, Claypool said, 
and then answered, I'm going to pick the fruit and burn the rest. When the tornado blows in from out of nowhere, and when that which was so important to you has been uprooted and toppled, you have a choice. And the best choice, I would suggest, is to pick the fruit and burn the rest. Find what can, what can be salvaged, what can in fact be fruitful, and, and move on. It is a choice at a, at a juncture, a pivotal juncture in your lives that will determine, in fact, the rest of your lives. This morning, is, um, we're, we're emphasizing the Gideons. And I want to tell you my new favorite Gideon story. Three Sundays ago, Carrie and I left this service and jumped in Carrie's car and drove south to Chilton County to a residential treatment facility for young men who are in rehab, fighting for their lives, uh, young men who are uh, struggling with addictions. And uh, we heard, we spent uh, the day, the afternoon and evening there. That afternoon, uh, we heard a presentation about the brain of someone who struggles with an addiction, <clears throat> about a different wiring, about the fact that, that people can have a glass of wine in the evenings and never have a, a negative impact from that most, but then, but then there's some for whom that glass of wine is like, a, is like a gateway to hell on earth and to all kinds of pain for those who love them. There is a difference in the brain. So we listened and, and learned. The man giving that presentation is named Robbie Keeble. And Robbie was telling about that brain and he was talking to family members of people who struggled with an addiction and, and he knew how bad it sounded. And he must have sensed the, the heaviness in the room and then he started, he sort of took a side trip and said, but, there's, but hope is powerful. He started talking about the power of hope and then he said, let me tell you my story. And so he told us about days gone by, three decades ago, when he was a high-ranking executive in a major corporation that you would know. And I loved his story so much, I emailed him and I said, would you write it for me? I want to tell it and I want to get it right. So I'm going to quote just a little bit from his version, from his story. After 17 years of active drug addiction, all the while, remember, 17 years of active drug addiction, all the while, he's a highly functioning executive. After 17 years of active drug addiction and destroying my entire life as a result of drugs and alcohol, I lost my family and my marriage, my home, and my career. There was a wallet for my arrest. 
I was about $87,000 in debt at that point, most of it for drugs and alcohol. My life was pretty much destroyed. So on this particular day in December 1987, after everything was gone, I ran away and wound up in a dark, dingy hotel room outside of Atlanta. He went on to explain that he checked into the hotel room not knowing if he ever would check out. His hopelessness was overwhelming. His bags were full of his drugs of choice. <clears throat> After three days, he wrote of using and being in a blackout and delusional and probably psychotic. I woke up. At that point, I was extremely depressed and hopeless and extremely afraid and very lonely after sitting there for several hours contemplating my choice between death or help. Something, I don't know exactly what, but something guided me to the nightstand and I opened the drawer and picked up what was a Gideon Bible. And he said, I know this sounds like a commercial for the Gideons, but it's not. In fact, he said, I've never told this story to the Gideons. You guys might want to enlist him. He said, I know this sounds like a commercial for the Gideons, but it's not. This is exactly what happened. He said, I opened the drawer. <coughs> and I opened the Bible to Psalm 51. And he said, I read there about this, this prayer of David to restore to me the joy of your salvation. He said, that, that sounded hopeless. I, he said, I, the idea of joy seemed too impossible, so that didn't connect. But he said, I kept reading. And I got down to that part where it says, what does God desire? A, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And he said, well, now we're talking. Because I am broken. And I am sorry. So he said, I did what any good southern boy would do. I called my mama. Full-grown man. And his mama said, come home. And he did. And he got into treatment. Now, 30 years later, Robbie Keeble is pouring his life into the lives of young men who are at a place somewhat akin to where he was. He, he helps with facilities all over the state of Alabama. Bill Crosby, remember Bill Crosby who spoke here several months ago? My good friend who is an alcoholic in recovery introduced us to Robbie. Robbie found fruit in the land of his suffering. Because Robbie speaks to young men now in ways that I cannot. Because he's been there. Robbie had a choice. At an important juncture in his life. What am I going to do with my pain? What am I going to do with my shame? What am I going to do with my brokenness? He made the courageous choice to let God turn that into something 
good. Sound a little bit like Joseph, maybe? So here's the lesson from Joseph. We're going to make bad choices, and thus we will suffer. People are going to make choices that hurt us, and thus we will suffer. Life is going to be unfair, and thus we will suffer. That's universal. But people of strong character understand that God is the God of redemption. And I am not naive, I am not naive when I say to you that God can do for you what he did for Robbie and what he did for Joseph. It's your call. If you'll do the work, there is real hope for fruit even in the land of your suffering.